Dr. Jennifer Roback Morris, you've been in this field of studying moral ethics for such a long time. And your book, The Sexual State, How Elite Ideologies Are Destroying Lives and Why the Church Was Right All Along, I think is a must read for everyone. So I wanted to ask you, and because I think you're just the right person to give a lesson in this course on this subject, based upon what you've seen, what you've studied, what you've written, what you've talked about, the things you've been engaged in over the decades, what's your thoughts? What comes to mind for you when you think about the diminishing sense of the sacred? Well, I've been working on marriage, family, and human sexuality since the 1990s. And I've come to the conclusion that the church has been right all along, as you can see in the subtitle of my book. And I'm used to thinking about things from a perspective of social science and kind of things in the natural order of things, because I'm not trained in theology or philosophy or anything like that. But, but if you believe in natural law, then you know that if you violate the natural law, you're going to see serious consequences, negative consequences in the natural order, you know, and it's going to be sooner or later, it's going to be obvious that this is a bad idea. Um, and so it's taken me a while to step back and go, let's take, let's look at the spiritual aspect of this as well. And that's not my normal uh, way of thinking, but the, but the fact is um, that what the church teaches is correct and, and has been correct all along. And what the church is t- trying to tell us is that the human body is something sacred because we've been created in the image and likeness of God. Every single person is in a sense sacred. We know from St. Paul that the body is, is the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? Um, we also know that the procreative power is something sacred. You could think of it in that way um, because you have the opportunity to participate in the bringing about of new life. Well, this is something very serious and, and very sacred. It's a responsibility. And we've lost all sense of that. We've lost all sense of the of the sacredness of the body and the sacredness of the sexual act and the procreation. What we now think as a society um, is that um, the body is a toy. Um, sexual activity is a recreational activity. Um, a child is a problem to solve if you don't want one or an object to purchase if you do want one, okay? So um, all of that is a diminishment of the basic understanding of Christianity from the very beginning of the sacredness of each and every person, each and every human life. And that the, the diminishment of the sacredness of the, of the baby ripples through all of our views about the sexual act itself and our relationships between husband and wife and all the rest of it. So there's really, there's really actually quite a lot at stake theologically um, in, in getting marriage and family right. And you know, we're so far wrong now. Uh, the whole modern world is so far off. It's it's actually it's making people crazy, to be honest. And I was impressed in your book because you started it off in I think maybe the first chapter, the conflict and confusion. This is your your opening thesis. You're making your case here in the opening of your book, the sexual state. And you have a section, a subtitle, the ideology of the sexual revolution. And I read from there just for a moment and get your your comments. You say that a sexual revolution consists of ideas as well as policies that put those ideas into practice. The main ideas of the sexual revolution are that 
A good and decent society should first separate sex from childbearing, the contraceptive ideology. Separate both sex and childbearing from marriage, the divorce ideology, you call it. And three, eliminate distinction between men and women, except those that individuals explicitly embrace the gender ideology. And clearly, I think everyone will say, man, this is this is prophetic. I mean, you didn't write this book too long ago, but did you foresee uh, when you get to number three, the elimination of distinction between men and women, did you, when you wrote this, did you see where we would be at here today? Just to be clear, uh, that book was published in 2018, which means the bulk of it was written well before that, (laughs) right? Um, And so even I didn't see how fast transgenderism would come. When, as soon as we got gay marriage in 2015, the whole movement, that whole LGBT gender ideological movement, it all just rotated a few degrees you know, it took all that stuff that they had built up, all the money, all their donation lists, all their influence with people, all of that stuff. They just wheeled it into place and started with transgenderism. And, 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 and so it looks like it's happened very fast. But the fact is, all of those things were in place well before um, all of this happened. But gay marriage led the way for that, you know, and I've been trying to write about that because there are plenty of people out there now who go, uh, oh gosh, transgenderism is so crazy. Where did this all come from? It all came so fast. Gay marriage was fine. I'm in favor of gay marriage, but this, this, this is too far, you know. Um, and and they're they're like gay men who are talking like this. You know, this is how Dave Rubin talks and stuff like that. Well, the fact is, you guys laid the groundwork for the whole thing. You have no right to be shocked, right? I mean, you took the most gendered thing that we do, namely having babies and being married. You know, <laughs> because marriage is a procreative is the institution that helps us procreate. It protects different aspects of, of our relationships, right? That's what the legal institution of marriage is supposed to do, protect the relationship between mother, father, and their children. Uh, you guys degendered that thing. That was the most gendered thing we do. How, how dare you be surprised to, to, to come to the point that people now say gender doesn't matter at all. The sex of the body is completely irrelevant. We're going to toss it out for everything. And I did know for a long time, David, I knew <clears throat> I could see, you know, I don't know, probably 2013, 2012, I could already see that where they were headed was for a society where the differences between male and female would be eliminated as a legal matter in law and society. That's where these people want to go, you know, um, that male and female is no longer recognized at all. And yeah, I knew that. I knew that when I wrote this book, I knew that's where they were headed. I was speaking with someone else in a series, um, Abby Johnson about this she has a different a different engagement yeah. in in this in the social spheres you you know similar you guys cross paths in, in a way but i want to ask you the same question i asked her in this sense that i've noticed this and i want to know if you notice it as well that it seems to be like the same people are involved in all these things as you said the um, not just the so-called lgbt mm-hmm. crowd but they're also the same people, the same people who are um, talking about yeah. abortion. They're those the same people as people are talking about euthanasia. Um, 
even people who are talking about critical race theory and Black Lives Matter, you know, it's, it seems like there's just a big party of these people who speak, talk, they all, they all agree, they all push these same ideologies on us. And have you noticed that, that these are Whoa. just all the same? No question. No question about it. Look, David, you might think that a gay man would be the last person who would care about abortion. Right. As a practical matter. Right. He's never going to need it. But but sidewalk counselors have noticed for years that gay men will come up and hoot at them and give them a hard time, be very house, hostile and so on and so forth. You know, you, you get some sidewalk counselors on here. They'll tell you, you know, that week in and week out. Yeah, that happens. They see it all the time. Well, so what they have in common, David, is a common view of human sexuality and its place in our lives. OK, so they may be focused on one little aspect of it. Uh, you know, like the gay men are focused on one part of it. The pro-abortion people are focused on another part of it. But what they have in common is as, as an understanding of human sexuality, which is 180 degrees at odds with what you and I believe. OK, and so let me let me lay that out for you. OK, because I think that will help people. All right. I mean, and by the way, this poor little book, you know, if it was just a catalog of crazy stuff, it would have been out of date the day it was printed. Right. Because it's. <laughs> accelerating, but the underlying structure that's going to last. Right. And so that will help you see. So here's the way I look at it. And this is from my, you know, kind of political science background. <clears throat> you can think about the difference between a constitution in a country and the ordinary process of making laws in the country. Okay. So the constitution gives you the rules of the game by which all the other laws and structures are put into place. Right. So we have a constitution that says, here's how we pass laws. Here's in who's in charge of enforcing them, offers you procedures, so on and so forth. And then all kind of things take place under that heading. OK, so you can also think of a sexual constitution. There's a set of structures which governs how everybody is allowed to have sex, reproduce and have sexual relationships. You know, what is marriage, family, and human sexuality? What are the basic rules of the game? Once you have that established, everybody operates within those rules, all right? So there is a Catholic sexual constitution, and then there's a sexual revolutionary sexual constitution, right? And their sexual constitution says what, I, what you just read, the three ideologies, okay? Their idea is that the sex of the body is irrelevant for anything. That's where they're headed. Their, their idea is that sex is not primarily for procreation. Sex and procreation should be separated, right? And only, you know, if, if you have quirky lifestyle preferences, it's okay, you can have a baby. But, you know, basically sex is considered to be a morally and socially neutral act that is recreational in nature. And then finally, the divorce ideology, kids don't really need their parents very much. It's not particularly important to children whether they live with the same set of people their whole childhood, uh, whether their parents take on new sex partners. Uh, none of, kids are so resilient, none of that matters. Okay, so that's the new that's the new constitution that we're all living under. It's a constitution that favors the interests of sexual, of the sexual interests of adults, you could put it that way, okay? The interest that adults have in having sex without um, constraints versus the Catholic sexual constitution. The Catholic sexual constitution says, get married, only have sex with, your part, with the person you're married to, stay married unless somebody does something really awful, um, and be nice to your, man, be nice to your spouse, you know, um, and, and 
be and be grateful um, for the children that God gives you. Be satisfied with the children God gives you. You're not entitled to perfect kids. You're not entitled to kids on your schedule. You're not entitled to the number of kids you want. Your kids are a gift from God. That's what we think, okay? And that is uh, completely not what the whole, all of the sexual revolutionary ideologues, they all agree that kids are something we as adults control and not something that that is a that we receive gratefully as a gift from God. Okay, so that that's those are the basic differences between the sexual constitution. And and one of the things that's at stake is that so many people want to have sex without the responsibilities that a decent person knows are attached to parenthood. Okay, so because those responsibilities, everybody instinctively knows that you really do have some responsibilities towards your kids. And so um we're trying to bracket that off. You know, if you look at it, that's what we're trying to avoid. Right. And so we, in part, we don't even let ourselves know anymore, you know, that those responsibilities are real, that the kids, the kids have a legitimate claim on us and that's what people don't want to deal with. And, and, and that's what the Catholic tradition a hundred percent deals with, you know, Catholic tradition protects the interests of children in a way that no other sexual constitution has ever done in the history of the world. You know, if you really look at it, um, and so that's why I think Catholics need to stop apologizing and stop pussyfooting around about this stuff. We should never apologize for the church's teaching. There may be crazy people all over the place in the Catholic church. We have to apologize for those people, but we must never apologize for the church's teaching. Never. Something came to mind, um, Dr. Morse, when you were speaking, that there, there's a part of this, their constitution or sexual constitution, sexual revolution, their revolutionary documents, so to speak, that um, seems to be logical and that it seems to be consistent. It, we, we completely disagree with it. You know, I would call it demonic. But if the first principle is that, well, you know, we're not sacred, we're not, we're, created by, we're not created by God, we can do anything we want with our body, we have a right to do anything we want with our body. If that first principle is true, then everything else, therefore, follows, you know, pornography, abortion, just it. So I, I get that. But at the same time, there's something odd here that you, you brought up. I'm going to read out of your book. And, and it's about children. You mentioned earlier in 2013, you just kind of saw this and you may have saw once, you know, we legalized, especially on a federal level, um, same gender marriage that, well, man, they're going to push this right to adopt children. They're going to really hammer this in. So my question is, <laughs> is this like a struggle against what you call the natural law? On one hand, they have this sexual constitution that has these first principles. And on the other hand, they're struggling against natural. Yeah. Are they struggling against natural laws? Is that why they want children or is it something more? Yeah, no, it's so, absolutely. They are absolutely at war with nature. OK, they're absolutely at war with the natural law. Uh, they're at war with nature. They want to control nature. See, see there's a, a, one of the very strong um, tenets of modernity, you could say, is man's control over nature. You know, we're so smart, we have science, we get, get to control nature, okay? And so they've taken that idea that we want to control nature to we want to remake nature, right? Uh, science only works, the scientific method only works if and when you respect nature 
and you're looking at nature as a, as a thing that is stable and is knowable, which, by the way, flows from the Judeo-Christian tradition about the whole created order being a gift from a, a rational God, right? Uh, it's stable enough that you can study it, but if you're going to harness it or, or use it in any way, you have to respect it. You know, you don't get to go around and, and, and fool with it, you know? Um, and that's where we, we, we want to completely control it, right? I mean, we got into the point where we want to control it such that we remake human nature. And that, by the way, David, remaking human nature is at the root of every totalitarian ideology that you can think of. So you can really see all the markers of totalitarianism within the, within the sexual revolution. To me, I mean, this was the thing that it took me a while to really grasp it. And to really, you know, face it, it's in the book. It's it's in, um, but in, in the sexual state, I had it figured out by them. But 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 the more I learn about it, you know, and the more I think about it, the more you see, you know, that one characteristic of 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 uh, totalitarian ideologies is that they posit this dream world, this utopian fantasy world, um, and and we can all have that if you just give us enough power. You know, we'll have this wonderful world where there's equality of everyone, and everyone will share, and everything will be nice, and 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 everything. You know, so <laughs> right, right. But the problem is they have to remake human nature to get there. You know, the Marxists, the economic Marxists, basically had to say people don't care about private property; they'll treat public property the same way they'll treat their own private property. Well, that's ridiculous. You know, you no know, no sane person you know, can really think that, right? Um, and now we're to the point where uh, we don't have to respect the reality of our body. We don't have to respect the, the reality of, of the gendered nature. We're in re the, the two gendered nature of the human species. We're in revolt against the fact that we're mammals, basically, you know, um, and that's a, so if you're going to implement that, you have to have a lot of power. You have to have constant nonstop propaganda. Um, to help people, you know, stop thinking about the fact that, gosh, my little boy really actually acts quite differently from the little girls. What, I wonder why that is. <laughs> you know, you know, when I was a little girl, nobody had to wonder why that was. Everybody understood. Yeah, boys are going to be a handful. That's a normal boy, you know, right? Um, and so we can't face that anymore. And and we have all this propaganda being, you know, kind of constantly and shoved down our throats. You know, if you feel that way, people, you know, people watching David's show here, if you feel like you're being constantly bombarded, you are correct. <laughs> that is true, you know, and it's a necessary feature of anything that's trying to overwrite nature, you know, or, or reality or human nature. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for that, um, Dr. Morris. You're really putting this these puzzle pieces together and I hope that the, you know, the student listening to this may have heard what I heard because it sound like a couple things are clear. One, in their denial of the sacred, in their denial of God, they've created an eighth, it's become an atheistic mentality, this denial of God. And by denying God, they've, in a way, become their own false gods. And because they're these gods, they can <laughs> do what God does. God creates, but we cannot create. And everything we try to do is just, is just, a mess. And one of the messes that you, you, you point out in your book, and this is in Interlude 2, um, titled On the Essential Public Purpose of Marriage. You say children of divorce were the first victims of the sexual revolution. Children of unmarried parents follow quickly behind them. Now, 
children of same-sex couples and children of donor contraception are the latest victims. To understand why I call these children victims, let me take a moment to unpack what marriage does for children. And this is the point that you've made that you you speak about, you know, you, you've written more about that, um, that some people have points of contention with even, even people in the Catholic church. I'd like you to talk about that, but also the things that you, um, that you mentioned last, you said donor, donor contraception are the latest victims since 2018. Have there been more victims? Um, Along the lines of the divorce ideology, I think we've covered all the bases of, of the various ways in which kids can be victimized in this way. Okay. And so just to be clear, the, the, essential public purpose of marriage is to attach mothers and fathers to their children and to one another. That's the purpose of marriage. That's the reason every known society has had something like marriage, albeit with different rules. You know, not every constitution is exactly the same, but the need to provide for children and the understanding that children are best provided for by the people who brought them into being, that's what motivates the institution of marriage. And so I developed that phraseology, David, during the marriage debates. Um, I would talk about the essential public purpose of marriage whenever I would go to a law school to explain why we should not adopt same-sex marriage, so-called. Okay. And I did that for, I don't know, from 2008 all the way through 2013, I was doing that on a really regular basis. So I had to really, I confronted a lot of the alternative arguments and things like that. And so it's an essential purpose in that um, if you didn't need to attach mothers and fathers to children, no one would have ever thought of marriage. You know, it just never, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have ever been a thing. And, and it's, the public purpose, as opposed to all the private reasons that people might want to get married. So people can have all kinds of private reasons that they, want, that they want to get married, that they choose to get married. But none of those, even all of those taken together, are not sufficient to explain why you need a public institution of marriage, why you need a law of marriage, why you need you know, uh, rules about who can and who can't, and how you form a marriage, how you dissolve a marriage, so on and so forth. So that's what I was trying to convey to people. The fact that gay people are going to feel better if we let them marry each other is literally irrelevant. You know, it is it is so far down the list of things we should be talking about. You know, if we're going to redefine marriage, we really need to know what marriage is there for in the first place, right? And I can testify, David, I can tell you flat out, in all those years I was debating, we were only allowed to talk about one thing. How are gay people going to feel? Boom. That was the debate, right? Um, you know, and I would show up at a law school and start bringing up these other points and, um oftentimes one or two students would come up afterwards and say, you gave me something to think about here, you know, because, you know, I would arrive on the law school campus, David, and the only people who agreed with me were the three guys in the federal society who invited me. <laughs> the whole rest of the campus is like out to kill me, you know? So what what's really happened since 2018 is that donor conception has become even more normalized even more mainstream than it was before, which of course you could easily see that coming. You know, if you're going to say that two men and two women have the right to call themselves married, you could easily see that what was coming next was that they have every right to have stigma-free 
opportunity to become parents, right? And uh, and that it should cost less and it should be covered by insurance and that parenting equity should be the next thing, you know? And so, you know, always what we wanted to say over here at the Ruth Institute was, look, you're, you say you're all about equality, but the fact is you're setting up a system of vast, vast inequalities among children. The children are being shoved aside as being peripheral to the debate, to the debate, which is the only way you can do what you're trying to do, you know. But some children have a legally recognized right to know both of their parents and to be supported by both of their parents. Other children, those conceived through donor conception, those children do not even have the right to know the identity of their parents. The state literally stands between the father who's donated his sperm to a sperm bank and the child. The state is actively coming between a parent and a child. When a father masturbates into a jar, leaves it at the sperm bank, he is consenting to be a legal stranger to that child. Okay. Now, the grown-ups think this is hunky-dory. The guy walks out with a hundred bucks. The woman gets the guy she wants and she doesn't have to put up with him. Okay. But from the child's point of view, they're all cute and cuddly when they're babies and they coo with their mommy and everything's great. But when they get older, they want to know, well, who am I? Why do I have freckles and nobody else in the family does? You know, where do I get this funny temperament? What the heck? Yeah. <laughs> Why don't I have a dad? The, the child actually cares about it. And this takes us back to the war on human nature. The ideologues want to assert that it doesn't matter in the end to the child. The fact that the child is upset is not a sufficient reason to not do it because there's nothing essential about the human tendency to want to know your origins, to want to be in connection with your own mother and father. That is a part of human nature that we're just going to write right over because we don't like it. Okay. And that's the sense in which donor conception is a very aggressive attack on the rights of children. Okay. And, and the other thing it does, the other inequality that it creates, David, it creates inequality between the generations. Now you're a father. So, you know, naturally the father and the mother are unequal compared to the children. That's going to happen, you know, and your older parents uh, they become diminished in capacity and you have responsibilities to them. You're no longer equal in that dimension either, right? But here's where you are equal. When you were born, your mother and father accepted you as a gift from God. They did not see you as their creation that they chose and bought and paid for. They did not see you in that way whatsoever. The people who conceive through donor conception, they will never say, I bought this kid, this kid's an object. They will never say that. They don't want to say that. They don't mean that. I get that. I'm not accusing them of that. I'm just saying, ontologically, they sort of did that, right? They went to a catalog. They chose a father that way, right? And they, and they agreed to have nothing to do with that person. So now the, the parent who is taking care of the child is in a different relationship to that child than that parent was to their own parents. Do you see what I mean? Right? There's a kind of power. When you say, I have the right to conceive in this manner, in this commercial manner, let's call it that. Maybe that's the best way. To, it's a commercial rather than a personal um, way of reproducing. Okay, 
when you say, I'm going to use a commercial method and I'm going to discard the personal, you now have a different relationship to your child. You have a different relationship to the child's other parent and you stand in a different position vis-a-vis them. Now there's an inequality there that, that isn't there in the normal course of things where people have a period where they have more power. <clears throat> you have sort of more natural powers when you're in the prime of your life compared to others. Um, but you were a gift from God. Your children's a gift from God. Your parents were a gift from God to their parents and so on. In that sense, everybody's really equal. And that's the wisdom of the church's teaching saying, guys, don't do that. Don't do, don't just stay away from all this stuff, man. It's good. There are things here you haven't thought of. Please leave it alone. Keep your sperm and eggs inside the body till you're ready to use them. No, no, no. Don't take them out. Um, Father Matori, he's a Dominican. He was he gave a, a lesson in his series, gave a class in his series, and he had he had made a, a beautiful point. Um, him being a missionary, he was saying, you know what, my experience in Africa, my experience in some other poor countries, even Puerto Rico, I find that people there are not concerned about the same type of we say woke wars or culture wars that we find in in the West. They're they're concerned about some just some more basic things, you know, like food, shelter, some of those things just on the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. But at the same time, I remember when Obama was president. I don't know why I picked out him, but it's just the most noticeable thing that Uganda was about to, you know, write, write a new constitution and he sent them a whole bunch of money to put something about homosexual rights, so-called, in the constitution. And so when you're speaking, is is America and other countries exporting using these ideologies that you laid out in your book, exporting these ideologies. Is that, does that concern you? Does that keep you up at night? Do you worry about uh, um, poorer countries? I'm glad you brought it up because I had a visit to Uganda myself in 2019. And, and it's funny you mentioned that because what I noticed was their sense of the sacred. Okay. They still have a sense of the sacred, a sense of the supernatural. And, um, you know, they're really good Catholics. You know, the Ugandan Catholics I met were really very impressive. And I, I, I remember coming back and saying to people, you know, look, they're sending priests to us. We have priests in this country because we don't have enough priests. Africa, Uganda, the Philippines, they are sending priests to us. We are sending them pills and pornography. So now you tell me who is civilized and who's barbarian, okay? I, I, I don't want to hear this um, white supremacy crap. We're at the bottom of the totem, moral totem pole here, you know, and they're going to save our bacons if it can still be saved. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so I like what your Dominican friend said there. I, I totally, totally endorse what he said there, you know. And, and it, as a matter of fact, I got I, I won't say I got into trouble, but I came to realize <clears throat> that some of the, the ways I was talking about the culture war and stuff like that, I realized that it was a little bit offensive for them. You know, it's like, and I realized, oh, you know, that's true. Decent people don't like to talk about sex in public. That's true. That's true. Now over here, we really need to talk about it because our opponents can't shut up about it. And if we don't say something, you know, we're going to be overrun. But but I, I think it's important to acknowledge that this is a whole realm that should be in the private sphere, right? That should not be out in public, that should be treated with that should be treated with more respect than is even possible to treat it when you're dealing with it in this 
you know, kind of politicized culture war public uh, forum that we're so used to by now. Dr. Morris, in this lesson, you've clearly laid out for us and we thank you for it. How do we lose the sense of the sacred? Um, you explained to us some of the things that we lost the way. Um, one thing you said is that we lost our minds, which is a, a great way to sum it all up. But I want to ask you for this final question, based upon what you've written, what you've been talking about, the things you've been engaged with for many years. What is a healthy society? Um, how does that connect to recovering the sense of the sacred? And how do you think we can get there or can we get there from here? You know, at the Ruth Institute, we have a, a kind of vision statement, I guess you would say, um, that the Ruth Institute has a dream that every child be welcomed into a loving home with their own mother and father married to each other. That's our dream. And the reason we have that dream is so that every child can be in a relationship with their own mother and father, except for some unavoidable tragedy. Okay. And we have backup plans when unavoidable tragedies take place. Um, and so that every child without exception, tragedy or no tragedy, so that every child can know their identity. They can know their genetic identity. They can know their cultural heritage. They can be connected to all of that. Even if something happens and your mom and dad can't take care of you, you have a right to know who they were, right? Um, and so that that's from the perspective of the issues we work on here at the Ruth Institute, that's our vision of a healthy society. And I like to bring that up. As a matter of fact, there are staff meetings every week. We read our vision statement out loud, you know, so that we're all zoomed in that this is what we're here to do. This is what we're all about, you know. Um, and it's important to have that sense of what you're about because of this idea of the sexual constitution. We have lost our sexual constitution piecemeal, like one little nibble at a time we have lost that fundamental connection, that fundamental vision of who we're supposed to be. I don't think it's possible to get it back piecemeal, uh, okay? I, and so the only way we will ever get it back is if we have clearly in our minds the vision of where we're trying to go, right? And so the vision of where we're trying to go, <clears throat> the vision of where we're trying to go has to do with mother, father, and children united in some kind of relationship and understanding of identity, you know? And that, so that, that's, the, that's the core of it. And I would commend that to anybody working in any aspect of this thing. You know, we've got all our pro-life friends who are working to save people's lives, literally. But they're also, if you think about it, uh, the women who work in the crisis pregnancy centers, they're not just trying to save the babies, though they are, but they're also trying to help these mothers um, live more responsible and fulfilling lives by giving them some understanding that what led them to this point where this baby is a crisis, uh, that there are other ways that they could choose to live, you know, um, and that we're here to help you and to empower you and to give you the resources and the knowledge to help you find a more stable, more love-filled way of living, right? Um, that's not where you're not crowding out the good love with the cheap sex, you know, um, Right. And I think that I, I, so that's why I think that what I've done here in this book and what we talk about at the Ruth Institute, we're empowering people who are doing that type of ministry. You know, we're equipping them, we're helping them see the big picture. 
and how they fit into it. And I think I think people seem to find that helpful. You know, people keep inviting me to talk at these places and stuff, so evidently they think that it's helpful. But, you know, the, the ladies in the crisis, crisis pregnancy centers, the pregnancy care centers, David, they're engaged in hand-to-hand combat. You know, they are fighting for one soul at a time, you know, and um, God love them. But, yeah, so that that that's the, old, I, the details of how we get it back. I don't know what that's going to look like. But I do know that if we don't have a clear picture and state it clearly of what we're about and why we're about it and stop watering it down and stop pussyfooting around, you know, and stop complaining and, and, and apologizing for it. Um, if, if we don't do that, we, we're dead in the water. We have no hope. You know what I mean? Dr. Morse, thank you for this catechesis and instruction on the sense of the sacred. Thank you. Well, thank you, David.